Chapter 4, Part 2 from the sermon series, The Gospel of John, spoken by Catrice Walker. It's a high honor, a privilege even for me to stand before you today in this way. For those of you that don't know me again, my name is Catrice Walker, affectionately known as Binky. And as Pastor Peter mentioned, I am the Director of Worship Arts here at Metro. What up, Greg? What up, Tish? Uh, because it's Women's History Month and because God has a great sense of humor, Pastor Peter has invited me to have this opportunity again to share both my story and break bread with you all. So let's eat, shall we? Amen. Amen. Additionally, I'm going to talk about some hard things today, things that admittedly may make you feel uncomfortable. They may be triggering for you, and if that is the case, you have the freedom to walk outside, take a break. I won't be offended by that. I respect you, and I want you to know that up front. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, it is a gift and an honor to be able to stand before your people. I just pray, God, in the name of Jesus, that you would use me for your glory, that you would hide me behind your cross, that people would see you, that they would not see me, and that you would be glorified in this space. Thank you that I sense your Holy Spirit in this room. I thank you that I sense your presence. And I look forward to seeing how you will use my story for the upbuilding of your kingdom. I love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, let's get into it. I believe that one of the reasons God allowed me to have this platform this morning is to share something with you that's so simple that perhaps you might not even initially be able to comprehend the significance of it. But I challenge you to stick with me. Several years ago, in one of our staff meetings, Pastor Peter asked a question that for some reason sent me into a downward spiral. The question wasn't about spirituality or anything deep or philosophical in nature. It was actually pretty simple. He asked, what was your experience like growing up in this country? As the responses came pouring in, I began to notice, though, that I, I began to feel something inside the more I listened. Growing up in Cleveland, Ohio, a predominantly black environment, I didn't experience teasing or bullying because I was black. Everybody was black where I lived. Teased because I had darker skin, absolutely. Teased because I spoke proper or sounded like a white girl, sure. In fact, they even had a fun nickname for me. It was Megan. <laughs> Nevertheless, I was genuinely surprised to hear some of the things that my brothers and sisters were saying around that table, surprised by how people that look like me treated many people that look like many of you. And if I'm being most honest, I just remember sitting there thinking, well, here's hoping I'm not a trigger for anyone at this predominantly Asian church you just led me to, God. For the rest of the day, though, after that staff meeting, I kept thinking about the conversation, mulling over the question. I mean, I went from slavery to our roots in Alabama to my grandfather's move up north to my dad and his siblings. As a matter of fact, here's a picture of some of them. That is my dad in those stupid red pants. <laughs> there were, <laughs> thanks. There were 10 of them, seven guys and three girls, and from the 10, they made about 50 more people. So growing up, family gatherings were lit. There was always lots of cousins to play with, lots of food, great music, laughter. But later that evening, again, after that staff meeting, all I could think about was how time and the crack epidemic and the psychological damages of slavery that's still impacting black people to this day ruined my people. 
of my dad's nine siblings at the time, only three were left. All of them died of either drug overdoses, cancer, and one, a brain aneurysm post a domestic violence dispute. And our family was close, so close, that when my father's baby brother died, thankfully, on the same day as my niece's prom, so I happened to be in Cleveland, I went right down into my cousin's house, which was a crack house where he passed away. I wanted to see him. I knew what he struggled with, but thought things had gotten better. So I went right down into that room where his cold, lifeless body laid. I needed to put eyes on him. I needed to see him. There were parts of his story that he just couldn't overcome. So my favorite uncle who was doing well for himself, who played a significant role in his church, an award-winning electrician, an incredible vocalist and father ended up just being a man that succumbed to his own demons. I come from musicians and singers, but also drug dealers, pimps, prostitutes, liars, rapists, and thieves. This is the family I knew and loved, but the combination of grief of what I would lose and the fear, excuse me, the combination of grief of what I lost and the fear of what I would lose became overwhelming for me that night so overwhelming that I called my father crying and screaming at the top of my lungs. Eventually, I stopped long enough to notice that he was terrified. See, I moved to New York in 2005, and at that point I had never done that before, so I calmed myself down enough to communicate that I was just afraid. Afraid that I'd be single and alone when he died, and unexpectedly, just a few months later, he did die. And by God's grace, I wasn't alone. But that's a story for another time. Now, I gave you all this context because again, sharing my story is part of the reason why Pastor Peter asked me to speak today, but it's not the only reason I'm here. See, in my opinion, family, we're doing the world a disservice by not sharing the most valuable asset we'll ever have in this life, our stories. Amen, Amen. Amen. you can clap for that. The goal, my goal prayerfully today is to help you understand the power of the humble testimony. Now, I've told you a little bit about me, and you heard about the Samaritan woman last week, right? Well, if you weren't here or are unfamiliar, here are the screenshots, if you will. A poor, brief synopsis of what happens at the beginning of John chapter 4, in my words, which are going to leave out so many details. So make sure you take the time to read it on your own to get a gist of what's really happening here. Nevertheless, Jesus is resting at Jacob's well. Woman shows up at the well to draw water. Jesus asks the woman for a drink. Woman responds like, bruh. <laughs> Jesus responds like, sis. Woman responds like, oh, you think you all that? Jesus responds like, okay, well, guess what I know? Woman responds like, oh, snap. <laughs> and now, here we are again in John chapter 4, beginning at verse 27. Read along with me if you can't see the screen. <laughs> You can pull it up on your phone, all right? John chapter four, beginning at verse 27. Sorry, I work with youth. All right. Just then his disciples came back. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman, but none of them had the courage to ask, excuse me, the nerve to ask, what do you want with her or why are you talking to her? The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village, telling everyone, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. 
Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus, Rabbi, eat something. But Jesus replied, I have a kind of food you know nothing about. Did someone bring him food while we were gone? The disciples asked each other. Then Jesus explained, my nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. You know the saying, four months between planting and harvest. But I say, wake up and look around. The fields are already ripe for harvest. The harvesters are paid good wages and the fruit they harvest is people brought to eternal life. What joy awaits both the planter and the harvester alike. You know the saying, one plants and another harvest, and it's true. I sent you to harvest where you didn't plant. Others had already done the work, and now you will get to gather the harvest. Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, he told me everything I ever did. When they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village. Oops. So he stayed for two days, long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. Then they said to the woman, now we believe, not just because of what you told us, but because we have heard him ourselves. Now we know that he is indeed the savior of the world. Amen. Amen. This interaction between Jesus and the Samaritan woman, this entire conversation around the well, well, the parts that we are privy to, Jesus calling her out for having more than five husbands and her being seemingly annoyed, for lack of a better term, by him even talking to her. Those cultural nuances. I I love this story for many reasons, but one that I think could be most useful for us today is really just understanding that in all our stories, there are multiple ways to look at what's happened to us. Multiple themes and dynamics that could be useful for the upbuilding of the kingdom because the fields are ripe. See, when we get to verse 27, the dis- 27, excuse me, the disciple, when the disciples return, the story that we've read escalates from more of a classic TV drama to something that's closer to, have you ever seen a movie Inception or any movie where there's a story within a story? Well, that's what I see happening here. Multiple, multiple events, but two that I want to focus on. The first, my mouth is so dry. It's like I drank the water, but did it do anything? <laughs> My bad. The woman's conversation with Jesus was so remarkable that she left her water jar to run and tell others about the encounter, which is odd to me. If she came to the well to draw water, I assume she needed water. But the plot changed. Water was no longer the objective post her time with Jesus. She came for one thing, but left with something completely different. I would even argue that in a previous verse, where she asked Jesus to give me this water so I don't have to keep coming back here, that the loudest thing I hear is the frustration of having to satiate this unmet need. Though it was common for women to perform this task, water did not come easily. Maybe she was tired of carrying that weight. I don't wanna keep coming back to this place. Have you ever been there? I would argue that we all have. We all walk around carrying the weight of what we thought would satisfy us. For some, it might just be a few extra pounds. But for others, maybe it's like a new job or promotion. Once I make this amount of money, dot, dot, dot. But once you got it, you realize it wasn't all you thought it would be, or maybe marriage was the ideal. But after the exchanging of vows, you realize that marriage is much more than a beautiful wedding. It's also having to come to terms with your brokenness, 
while someone else watches and weighs in from a front row seat. Hilarious. In my water jar family, I often carry around the lies that I believe about myself. The most vicious is the lie that I don't matter. I believe this was birthed in me because of the things my parents did and did not say. It could also be the result of things that happened to me growing up. The lie that I don't matter causes me to cry myself to sleep some nights, mostly because the things that I desire don't line up with what my life looks like. Though I know in my head that I matter to him, I don't always feel like I do in my heart. Anybody agree with that? Nevertheless, but I love you, Tara. <laughs> Nevertheless, there was, something about the way, there was something about the way Jesus spoke about this living water that helped her realize, maybe I'm focusing my time and effort into the wrong things, things that require another trip and another trip and another trip back to the well. Again, Jesus, give me this water so I don't have to come back here again, here to the place I bring myself when no one else is around, the place where I fill it up with I bring my water jar and this is the place where I fill it up with whatever it is I'm choosing to believe will satisfy my needs in that moment. Things I'm tired of carrying. The expectations of others. The pressure I put on myself. The burdens of my family. The unprocessed childhood trauma. What's in your water jar? Despite the shame, the embarrassment, maybe even the fear, this woman's encounter with Jesus was so extraordinary. That, was, that what was once a priority became an afterthought. I can hear her saying when she left Jesus, I just need to tell somebody about what just happened to me because that conversation set me free. Have you ever felt that way? Well, what do we do with good news, family? Hopefully we share it. That, my sister, is a testimony, a story of God's transformative, life-changing work in your life, Coco. Our stories, our testimonies impact others. In fact, the Bible tells us in Roman 10, Romans 10, 17, that faith comes by what? Hearing. Hearing. The Samaritan woman's account of her interaction with Jesus ended up being the catalyst for belief. One biblical commentary even says because Jesus treated this stigmatized woman as someone worth talking to, she became a witness to Jesus and all of Sakaar was brought to him. I wanna challenge you this afternoon to consider that your experiences both the beautiful and the painful parts of your life. It's not just for you to hold on to with a clenched fist. I believe it's for others as well. But I don't think it's fair to assume that everyone has gotten acquainted with their personal storylines. So here are some practical steps that I hope might help you develop the courage to share your own story. My first point, be painfully honest with yourself first. When I was a kid, there were age restrictions around summer camping where I lived. You couldn't be older than 13 to attend. So the year I turned 13, I begged my parents to finally let me go, and thankfully, they did. I'll never forget, June 26, 1994, me and my friend Felita, Felita, a dumb, ridiculous name. I'm sorry, Felita. It's just, I just, you know, that's just my thoughts on the name. 
showed up looking as fly as ever with the intention of getting as many phone numbers as possible, and we did. <laughs> I think I got like two, three, you know what I'm saying? It was a good day, it was a good day. And that night, as the two of us were on the phone recapping the highlights of, of the day, I heard my father screaming my name at the top of his lungs, Binky, Binky, admittedly annoyed because I'm trying to set up my plans for world domination. The next day, I get off the phone with her and run into the room only to find him slapping my mother on the back and asking me to call the ambulance. Here's a picture of my mom and some of her siblings. Clearly the joy she's radiating is because she's pregnant with me. That's her on the right, but I digress. When I walked into my parents' room, my mother didn't have on any clothes and my father was hitting her forcefully as this grayish fluid was coming out of her mouth. My mother was in and out of the hospital growing up. She was always sick. I don't remember knowing what was wrong with her. I just remember knowing that something wasn't right. And that night in the room was the last time I saw her. She died at 35 of cardiac arrest. Prior to my mom's passing, my, sibling, my parents and their siblings were big partiers, which meant my siblings and I were always left at either my grandmother's house or someone else's house on the weekends. I was sexually molested by several of my male cousins, a girl at daycare and eventually raped by a close family friend. My older sister, not knowing what was happening, even walked in as I was being raped and turned around and closed the door. She left me there. The older I got, the more I realized that a large part of me never said anything about all these things that were happening to me because as perverse and disgusting as it is, it made me feel wanted. And feeling wanted Family, like I mattered to someone, anyone, was really my deepest desire. All of the attention in my household growing up was on my mother and her needs, or my five-year-old sister and her needs, or my older sister and her season of rebellion, or my father who was a cab driver and also pursuing his music career. I never was the focus, which may or may not be completely true, but it's how I felt at the time. All these things were happening simultaneously, which left me feeling completely, utterly unseen. Jesus's conversation with the disciples about planting and harvesting, though, is the second major event that's happening as this woman is out telling the townspeople about their interaction, about her interaction with Jesus. While she's out sharing the good news, Jesus was setting up the disciples to reap what they did not plant. Upon the disciples' return, they were presumably both shocked and or terrified to discover Jesus was talking to a Samaritan woman. Jews considered Samaritans to be second-class citizens. It went against custom for Jesus to be openly speaking to her, a woman. There were also rules prohibiting rabbis from talking to women in public. Additionally, she lived in a culture that followed strict laws concerning sexual purity. So, she was an outcast, and since Samaritans were rejected by Jews, she was an outcast amongst outcasts. The disciples went from begging Jesus to eat to asking each other if anyone had given him food. It was a good thing that they wanted to make sure that he was okay, but just like everyone else had done, they disregarded her too. Verse 27 says, they were shocked to find him talking to a woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask, what do you want with her? Or why are you talking to her? None of them had the courage to ask none of them. 
See, their priority was on meeting Jesus' need, but his priority was on her. In fact, the whole point of him being there was because this part of the story was about her, mama. Being painfully honest with yourself about your story is the beginning of your healing journey. Being painfully honest with myself about how detrimental my desire to feel wanted was is a large reason why I can be content as a 42-year-old single woman with no children. I understand now that singleness does not mean I am lacking or that I'm unwanted. And single people, I want you to believe that too. That is my prayer for you. For me, I believe it's, it's, it's a way that God is, I believe it's God's way, excuse me, of honoring me by giving me the time and space to prioritize the one person that thought nothing could or should ever be about them, me. And I thank God for that. The Samaritan woman felt safe enough with Jesus to sit in the truth of the painful shameful parts of her life. Maybe she needed the truth to be out on the table. Maybe that's what encouraged transformation, safety, honesty. When we share our stories, we give people the opportunity that Jesus gave her, the courage to finally feel safe enough to be fully seen, to be disarmed by love, to be disarmed by truth. As you are developing the courage to share your story after you take the time to recount all the details, being honest with yourself about how you perceive things that have happened in your life, what you wanted out of life at any given time, what you chased, what you believe you lacked. I also wanna encourage you to now look for details you may have missed along the way. Are there ways that God was setting you up for personal blessings or to be a blessing to others? Here's my second point. Look for hidden treasures within your story. Earlier I'd mentioned that I was upset about what time had done to my family. Admittedly though, I was focused on the wrong part of the the story. I knew my family to be who I said they were because that's what I saw, experienced, and what I was told. But last summer I went to our family reunion in Alabama and that trip, well, it, it really changed some things for me. My cousin Margaret, who is affectionately known as Sugarlump, is our family historian. We're great. We're great at nicknames, let's be honest. (laughs) After the reunion, I stopped by our house because I remember my dad telling me that she kept lots of pictures and heirlooms and I needed to see it. It was incredible. Wall-to-wall pictures, plaques. It looks like a little Walker family museum. She even has awards from government officials thanking the Walker family for our contributions to the community. Agriculture. We're good at growing things and I can't personally speak for crops and have killed every plant I've ever owned, but I think I'm kind of good at growing people, and I think that kind of counts, right? Appreciate (laughs) y'all. There's even a street named after us. Look at me being great on the street. Where my great-grandfather, Paul Will Walker, used to pastor. Sugarlump even has his Bible from the 1800s. I held it. I asked her if I could have it, but she told me it would be buried with her and that wasn't negotiable. (laughs) When I saw the plaque and read what was written about us, my people, I immediately began to weep because my whole life apart from music, I couldn't see any good in my family. I just saw violence, pain, poverty. I mean, I knew I was viewed as an adult in my family when I was invited into the basement on holidays to do drugs. 
I sat with my aunt at the table where she packaged heroin that she was selling to the drug addicts in the neighborhood. I wonder how differently I would have viewed myself and my family if I knew more of our story, but my grandfather moved up north and shifted his focus from the pain he overcame as a black man in the south to the bright, beautiful potential of this future for him and his family. And sadly, what was lost was the reality of who we were. Now, in addition to serving here at Metro, I also work as the Associate Regional Director for a global outreach youth ministry called Young Life. Come on, Young Life people. Y'all just came back from Young Life Camp. I've worked there since 2013, and I'm currently overseeing all of the ministry that we do in Queens. And I think that's my boss. <laughs> Appreciate you, fam. We're serving nearly 4,000 students in Queens alone, and because we're a nonprofit, I have to raise money, a lot of money. If I could just say that one more time, a lot of money. And sometimes that feels impossible, but in those holy moments where my story crashes into the story of my students, I see the hidden treasure in all the pain. I now get the opportunity to introduce them to Jesus because the fields are ripe and the fruit I get to harvest is children brought to eternal life. Children like a reef. Several years ago, the guidance counselor at his high school called me one morning to let me know that his mother had just been murdered by her living boyfriend. The administration knew the relationship our leaders had with him. So they asked me to come in just hours after the incident. I coached him through the details he needed to tell the police. Things like the fact that her killer had texted him the night before stating that she deserved death. They lived in a small one bedroom apartment in Far Rockaway in a reef who was probably about 6'4 at the time. Slept on the floor right off the kitchen in the dining room. But for the next three months, he wasn't able to enter into his apartment because it was an active crime scene. But the day that they gave him access to the space, myself and my leader showed up and stood in that hallway with him as they cleaned up his mother's blood. And at that point, I had not been trained on what to do in that situation. I was afraid, I was overwhelmed, I was scared, but I understood what it meant to be a motherless child, more so that this kind of pain needed to be held and carried to the right place, to the feet of Jesus. Tiff knew my story too. Her mother had cancer and when it was discovered that her mother was going to die, like literally was about to die. Minutes before her mother's transition, she called me. Called me so I could just sit with her in it, be with her in that moment because she knew that I'd experienced the same pain in Jeannie. Jeannie knew it too, she knew it too. So when she told us about being raped by a close family friend, I understood the pain she was carrying because it was my pain too. I didn't have all the right words to say. I didn't have a well-written theological answer that made death make sense or the violation that both Jeannie and I endured, but I had two things, the truth of what I'd overcome and a place to direct them to. Like the Samaritan woman, they came for one thing, but left with something completely different. Don't be mistaken. God doesn't waste pain. Surely the things you've experienced may very well be the same things someone you know, someone on your road is contending with. 
When I stand back and look at my story objectively, I look at it as resources that when applied can be a gift to someone else's life. But you may not be in a place today where you can say with confidence, though this experience broke me, I see value in it, but I pray that one day you will. Because knowing that someone has come out on the other side of what is referred to as the darkest night of the soul can be a gift to someone who can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. But you can't attend to someone else's wounds until you've addressed your own. Think about your life. Are there hidden treasures, good things that you can pull from the bad things that may be encouraging for someone else to hear on their journey? A hidden treasure in the disciple story might be that while they were about to reap a harvest they didn't plant, the Samaritan woman was going out and bringing the increase. And for her, it said that she came to the well at the hottest part of the day, high noon. Many believe, believe excuse me, she did this because she didn't want to be seen. Maybe she was riddled with guilt and shame and with no expectation, just as she'd done plenty of times, walking up to refill that water jar, she showed up and Jesus showed up as something greater, a hidden treasure. It's my last point. Anticipate redemption. After my mother passed away, my dad began serial dating. I believe it was both because his heart was broken, but also because he was trying to find a mother for his three girls. And in his pursuit, he stumbled upon the most beautiful woman, a woman named Kay, who loved him dearly. But due to his own personal insecurities, he didn't believe that he was enough for her. So he cheated, he broke her heart. And as always, there was another story happening simultaneously. In my own search for value, I was dating a very wealthy drug dealer. I was in high school and though I'd never been materialistic, I didn't mind the fact that he continuously lavished me with expensive gifts. But after a while, I became consumed, obsessed even, with this idea that I owed him something for all that he'd done for me. Because for the first time, I felt like I mattered, and that alone was worth everything to me. His birthday was coming up and I really wanted to get him something special, so my first bright idea was to sell guns. One of my peers had a connect and told me it would be a quick way to get a significant amount of money. Thankfully, my best friend talked me out of that. Shout out to Cedric. But one of my sisters suggested something else. I just needed to steal Kay's credit cards. At that point, I'd done that plenty of times from patrons at the airport where I worked. I didn't see it as a big deal, so I went to her home that morning as usual to drop off my younger sister, not knowing that her and my father would break up later that day. I went to her purse, grabbed her wallet, and went on a shopping spree. But my older sister, who went with me, ended up telling someone that knew Kay, and they called her. And then she called my dad to let him know. This is the worst part of the story. At that point, I believe that I was the apple of my father's eye, his pride and joy. But when I walked into the house and saw him, I saw a look of disappointment that I'd never seen before. I broke his heart. Even though I knew I caused him so much pain, I was already in fight or flight mode. I still had to save myself. So rather than telling him the truth, the full truth, that I just wanted to buy my boyfriend something nice, I took an alternative route, a half-truth. 
I used his own grief against him and said, I just did it because I wanted you to pay more attention to me. My dad, my first love, responded to my mother's death by prioritizing women. And in that moment, I saw his pain and used it to my advantage. I wish I could apologize to him for that, I really do. But when he died, I knew two things for, sh for sure. One, that I was deeply loved, and two, that he was already so proud of me. As a matter of fact, if I talked to him just one more day, if I set him down at the table and told him all the things I needed to say, the same would still be true. He loved me deep. And of my dad's nine siblings, the funeral home that Kay owns buried them all. She even buried my grandparents, my mother and my father. But the thing that blows my mind is that after everything he did to her, everything I did to her, when he died, she still held me up. She spoke to me like I was her child and lavished her love on me and my family, the same family that still owes her thousands of dollars to this day for people she buried that we couldn't afford to pay for. She calls me daughter and I don't deserve that. She calls me daughter. And I don't deserve that. She thinks I do because I matter to her. And I'm so grateful that God redeemed that relationship because I needed her in that moment and I believe she needed me too. Look, if it's true that we serve a redeeming God, then there must be, has to be parts of your story that are redeemable parts that God can use to change someone else's life. What else might be happening besides what you're focusing on? What other perspectives could there be? Because again, when we get down to the bottom of it, I have been both the Samaritan woman and the disciples, both oblivious to my own worth and too afraid to ask God, what are you doing? For years, I wanted my father, my mother, anyone to tell me I was valuable, but that was incomplete. If God determines the value, then your mere existence is evidence that you matter. Your perspective matters. Your voice matters. Your song matters. Your heart matters. Your experiences matter. Your culture matters. It all matters. Your story, it matters. The Samaritan woman, the second-class citizen, the stigmatized, shameful woman became the first evangelist in the Bible. She went from being reviled, looked down upon, to revered, respected. What sweet, beautiful redemption is this? Somehow she gained the courage, the confidence to come out of hiding because someone saw her. Jesus saw who she really was, not the names people called her, woman shameful, disgusting, etc. The fact that he saw her, even her. She wasn't, as far as I know, a religious teacher. I don't assume she had all the right words, but what she had was enough. She had her story. That is what brought people to the feet of Jesus. It is the tool that led them to Christ. What courage it must have taken to face the same people that judged her. To be honest about all of it, we don't have the benefit of knowing what all she said, but whatever it was, it was enough, more than enough. And I want to say that to you to encourage you. You don't have to know everything to say something. 
We all have a part to play in the developing story of God's deep, beautiful love with his creation. And I have spent my entire life retelling the wrong story and living out of that narrative. It's true. I come from musicians and singers, drug dealers, pimps, prostitutes, liars, rapists, thieves, and playwrights, actors, artists, chefs, preachers, sharecoppers, farmers, teachers, broken and beautiful people with all kinds of stories. Her story, your story, my, my, my story matters because they all belong to God's. They're only ours on loan to cultivate, protect, and portion. Why? because they're all smaller parts of a larger story that he is telling and has told since the dawn of creation. Come on, Greg, I see you, brother, I see you. My prayer is that knowing this truth might help you overcome the fear associated with being honest about all of it, but don't be fooled. Like the weight of refilling that water jar, the courage to tell the truth does not come easily, but I believe you can do it. And there may be cultural nuances at play here that admittedly I don't understand. People you worry about hurting by telling the truth. There may even be suffering associated with reliving the past, I get it. I've lost so many people in my life that sometimes it's hard for me to remember that God is for me. But what I've discovered over and over again is that every time I've challenged myself to change my perspective on what has happened or is happening to me, God has allowed me to cross paths with someone on a similar journey. He's allowed me over and over again to see them, to see the depths of their despair, to cry with them, to be vulnerable with them about my own pain to lead them in prayer or to fall down on our knees and that's caused transformation in both of our lives. What joy awaits both the planter and the harvester alike. <sighs> but it also took therapy, many tears, painful conversations, the cutting off of relationships, lots of mistakes. It took work for me to develop the courage to do what she did. It took looking into Arif's eyes after his mother was killed and seeing his pain and the pain of so many others on my journey. It wasn't overnight, it was years. Give yourself grace for where you are today, but actively seek help. You may 100% need therapy and that's okay, but pursue it. God didn't intend for me to go through the things I went through. His intent was not to harm you either. It's not supposed to be this way for children to experience abuse, rape, and neglect. It's not supposed to be this way for children to not have food on their tables. It's not supposed to be this way. The whole point of Jesus's birth, death, and resurrection is because it's not supposed to be this way. And if you're still in a valley, and if you still feel like this is the darkest night of your soul, baby, he is with you. Yes. Family, you have the opportunity here to be free. The humble testimony, your story is the most valuable asset you'll ever have in this life because if you let him, he can use it for the upbuilding of his kingdom. After all, the Bible says in Revelation 12, 11, that we not only overcome by the blood of the lamb, but also 
by the word of our testimony. Don't you want to overcome? Don't you want to be free? Now you may not be able, you may not be in a place where you can say today with confidence, though this experience broke me, I see value in it. But I pray that one day you will, if you're willing. Let us pray. God, I thank you that you hold the world in your hands. I thank you that you hold the world in your hands. I thank you that you are holding us even now. God, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room who, who have been caused to remember painful things in this space. I pray, God, in the name of Jesus, that you would be a friend that sticks closer than a brother in this moment. Pray that you would give us all the courage to speak our truths because if it's true that you don't waste pain, then that means this suffering that we have experienced is for a reason, God. Father, I thank you, God, that you will dry up every tear for those of us in the room whose hearts are broken. And I thank you, Father, that you have a plan for all the things to happen in our lives. Just pray that we will feel a sense of your nearness in this moment and that you will be glorified in our truth. We love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.